I mean, here's the thing about horror fans. They love to complain. They never support original movies. They bitch about sequels, and they'll rush out and see them opening weekend. So, of course, more sequels get made. And then an original movie gets made, and they go on the internet, and they tear the director down because they're jealous or whatever. They're like, this person sucks. This movie's going to be terrible. It's like the horror fans are great, but a lot of the times they don't want to give new people a chance. They say they want new horror, and then they go, well, it wasn't as good as Evil Dead. It's like, yeah, it's Evil Dead. Nothing's ever going to be as good as Evil Dead. This is going to be the foundation of of what I'm talking about today. And and I've been tweeting that um, this podcast would be focusing on uh, basically the the very generic term, and that is Hollywood bullshit. For all you indie filmmakers out there listening right now and and trying to get your stuff made and and distributed and and seen and reviewed and, and all of that stuff, it's important to understand, I guess, how certain things work. And then most of all, I don't understand why certain things work the way that they do. I want to take a look at a couple things, and that is, uh, I've, I've had some people recently send me their work. Uh, you know, would you please take a look at this screener? Would you would you take a look at my movie? And and one of them wrote, I, I really hope you don't trash it. We, we've become such a critical society, and, and we lack empathy for much of what is around us. From, from our fellow man, where you look at the headlines, where just recently, I, I just tweeted about a headline this morning about a kid who was stabbed and all people did was was stand around and record it. Nobody, nobody helped this kid. And we become this critical society that thinks because, well, we know how movies are made and we know what green screening is and we we know all the trade secrets. In, in other words, I'm, I'm going to pause here for a second to say that I think one of the biggest mistakes that was ever done during the uh, DVD revolution and, and home video revolution was the creation of behind-the-scenes and and DVD extra specials, uh, where basically what I feel is is the industry, like a good magician, revealed all their tricks. And once you see how the magic is done, it takes away a certain element of wonder and appreciation for what has been done. And we'll be going into this later in in some future podcasts where where I uh, believe in a phrase that I created called film dysmorphia, where we no longer look at things for what is being presented to us within context. Uh, we expect certain things, and then what happens is, is we turn around and, and we deem things dated, or we don't appreciate a stylistic choice by a director, and we just expect things to be a certain way because we've been conditioned to accept things a certain way. So getting back to this filmmaker, he said, please don't trash it. And, and that tells me a couple things, that the people, filmmakers especially, live in fear of, of putting their work out there. This is all we exist to do. You don't make a movie to keep it in a box, keep it on a shelf, keep it on, on hard media or on a hard drive. This is not what you do. And you put it out there. And, and basically, my attitude is, is fuck anybody who, who doesn't appreciate what you do. So, you know, this person was already starting off handing me this screener in the way of, of apologizing for their work. Don't, don't fucking apologize for your work. So, so what if you didn't shoot it on a giant budget? You think all my films have been shot on a giant budget? Let me tell you something. Even my highest budgeted film doesn't come close to the catering bill on some feature films or TV shows. So there, there is no pecking order here, and, and there is no hierarchy. I, I've said before in, in a previous podcast that there is this thing in Hollywood that I like to call, and Felissa Rose likes to call, we, we both call it the cool kids lunch table. And there are about like six cool kids 
that sit at this lunch table and all you want to do is get a seat there. Now, even if you get a seat at the cool kids lunch table, it doesn't mean they're going to talk to you or invite you to the party. When I look at a film, I I look at what goes into it. I, I look at Yes, the budget, but then I look at things in in a contextual stance and say, okay, so you add $50,000 to make this. Well, this is pretty damn good for $50,000. Could you imagine judging Gareth Edwards' monsters in the context of a legendary budget like Godzilla? If that was the case, then Gareth Edwards would have never landed that 2014 film. So I, I look at these things... And, and I look at what goes into it. How long did it take to make it? Uh, one person sent me a screener where it took them two years to make their film. And there is no shame in any of that. So never start off sending your screener to somebody in an apologetic stance. Because if you don't believe in it, well then why should anybody else? So the first part of this Hollywood bullshit is about the people that sit at the cool kids lunch tables. So let's take a view from 20,000 feet. And that is... Way back in the day, uh, back let's go back to when the original Halloween came out in 1978. A small film like that could get a theatrical release. It might open up in a handful of theaters, but it was given time to grow its audience. And, and again, I've, I've said this before that a lot of people think that the original Halloween was this instant out-of-the-box hit, and, and that is not the case at all. It took time for Halloween to find its audience, and, and of course it grew into what we have today. And it, and it really was riding the initial tsunami wave of, of the slasher genre. Today, that would not happen with a film like Halloween. Today, that film would be released straight to streaming, some type of home video market, and would probably quickly disappear. And I know you can say, well, that was, you know, almost 40 years ago. It was 40 years ago. So, it, it you know, things have changed. Yes. So now you have audiences that look at this film and a younger audience and go, well, it's boring. Nothing happens in the first hour. Uh, it's it's dull all the way up to the end, and then you don't see any blood. And people not understanding at all what John Carpenter was, was, was trying to do. So then after it reached its uh, theatrical, uh, if you didn't see it in theaters at that time, I mean, you had to wait. And you waited sometimes up to a year for this thing to show up on cable. And then sometimes you even waited longer for it to show up on home video, which at that time, that market was just starting to to grow. So it wasn't like you went out and you, you rented Halloween a year after it came out for 99 cents or something like that. There, there were all these steps and stages and windows. And so it took a long time for this movie to become the legend that it did. But audiences gave it a chance. And finally, maybe it would end up on the networks. Now, of course, if the networks picked it up, they would chop the living shit out of it. And there's really no sense. I I remember when CBS aired The Exorcist, and and this is going back to, I think, like 1980, 81, somewhere there. There is no point in a major network for general audiences to show that movie. Watch it on HBO, Cable, Cinemax, whatever there was, Prism, I remember at the time. But there is absolutely no sense in watching The Exorcist on network television. And the networks, if if you're old enough to remember, there were three networks at the time and they owned everything. You didn't so much uh, choose what you wanted to watch, you were exposed to it. And I had a friend who, who told me this summer, he said, you know, when you think about it, growing up as kids, it, you know, we we really did appreciate 
the previous generation's entertainment and pop culture. We we knew about the Three Stooges. We knew about 40s black and white films and Joan Crawford and, and Humphrey Bogart. And the reason why is because you really had no fucking choice. When this shit was on, you watched it. There was nowhere else to go. It wasn't like you popped in a tape or a DVD or you went to a computer and you have a hard drive with a thousand movies on it. There was no choice. So when the Stooges came on on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, you watched them. I I remember being totally exposed to Abbott and Costello and the Lemon Sisters because they were on every Sunday on Channel 11 out of New York. And if I was with my grandparents, that's what my grandfather watched. And that's how I also vicariously learned all about the war bond movement and the draft and, and World War II because it was reflected in the culture of the movie that I was watching. And of course, the World War II era was Abbott and Costello's heyday. Now, I was attracted, number one, to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. But I learned so much from the stuff that I was almost basically forced to watch because I had no other recourse. So what does this have to do with Hollywood bullshit? Okay, so now along comes Napster. And I remember way back when Napster debuted And kids were starting to share music files that I thought right there and then, this is the end of the movie industry. Because once the technology reaches a point, whether it's hard drive capacity, download speeds, and the ability to transfer this stuff. So the handwriting was on the wall with technology, and it was only a matter of time before video ended up the same way as music and the entire bottom falling out of the market. And here's where cynicism also comes into play, and that is executives knew this. And their attitude was, is I'll leave that for somebody else to do because the getting was good. I mean, there was a time, man, when you made an independent film for, let's say, 500 grand, you could take it to these markets and you would end up getting twice your budget back on DVD sales because everybody knew that that the DVD market was, was so lucrative and money was just flowing. It was kind of like, you know, the gold rush at that time. But then as everything else, it, it, it dried all up and, and uh, file transferring and torrenting and all that stuff came in and that was it. The bottom was out of the tub. And so in response, and this is just follow me here on this, in, in response, streaming networks started. And of course, you know, Netflix was the one that kind of paved the way and, and iTunes and all of this stuff. Yeah, Netflix started its its original programming. Everybody thought that Netflix was nuts. And, and of course, now everybody's trying to keep copying the Netflix model. So now what has happened is, is you have a number of these streaming networks out there. And so you have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and now Apple Plus. But here's the problem. What many independent filmmakers thought was, Wow, I'm going to finally have a place for my stuff to get seen. (laughs) Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. These giant streaming networks, while they do allow a platform for indie filmmakers, they are kowtowing right to the elite, the status quo. And there are probably a handful of filmmakers out there in in the A-list, at the top of the studio list, that they want their biggest product from. And they're dominating all these streaming networks. So the streaming networks are the cafeteria and those same kids are sitting still at the cool kid lunch table. So if you're trying to get a series off the ground, a streaming series, or you're trying to get your indie film uh, out there on, on Netflix or any of these things, it's now hard because 
the playing field has been totally crowded by, again, the same giants that are forcing indie films off the theatrical screens. Getting your indie film out now, and look, I'll be citing Death House as an example of this. Getting your indie film out in a theater for a theatrical release is near impossible now. I mean, the amount of money that it takes, it's just not even financially worth it to try to get your independent film out into a theatrical release. And I'm talking like a major theatrical release. And yet, you still do have these indie filmmakers that think, oh yeah, I'm going to make this $200,000 film and it's going to get 1,500 to 3,000 screens. The answer is pretty simple. No, it is not. How do you compete against this? And, And the answer is pretty simple and it's pretty cynical. You don't. I, I swear that there is some type of conscious movement to, to actually squeeze out the independent film industry because it just doesn't make the money that giant franchises and temples do. And that's basically what's taking over the theatrical screens. Uh, a theater would rather play 14 showings of, of, of It, Chapter 2, in two or three houses then take the chance on on a smaller film where the the odds are pretty much that it's not going to make any money. Even if it chapter two technically loses money on all those screens, they still feel it's a better bet than giving up a screen for multiple viewings of an independent film with no publicity or advertising. The next part of the Hollywood bullshit doesn't really focus on Hollywood so much as it does the people who suck up to Hollywood and think they know about Hollywood. And and those are the people who leave comments. Uh, They think they're critics. They think they're reviewers. And so this guy who sent me his screener, I felt really bad because I think he was expecting me to just trash it. And I'm not going to do that. Ed Wood made bad stuff. There is no doubt about it. But his heart was in the right place. And I'm not talking about the romanticized version that that Tim Burton made. The guy really fancied himself as a filmmaker and, and he tried. Look, my first film, The Fields, is very different than my other films because it was the first. And Six Degrees of Hell had a smaller budget than The Fields. And you work with what you have. You make the best damned movie you can make. What's cynical are the people that post the rotten comments and have to trash everything. And believe me, they do it across the board. They do it from the the big budgeted stuff all the way down. And and that'll be a separate podcast because I don't want to tie that up into the Hollywood bullshit, especially for you filmmakers that are listening. Uh, I I want you to to understand that even at the level I am at, and I am not at the Spielberg level, obviously. If I was, I wouldn't be sitting in my office making a podcast right now. So going back to the Hollywood bullshit, one of the hardest things as as a filmmaker, as an independent filmmaker, is is finding money. And and it's an endless dance. And and as I've said before, if you run in, I, I did, I... I did an episode on this. If you run into people that like to talk about all the money that they have, they either A, don't really have it, or B, they do have it, and they're not giving it to you. Real financiers don't talk about their wealth. They listen. They ask good questions. And if you answer the questions correctly, they just might ring the bell. Or otherwise, they'll tell you to have a nice day and thank you for your time. Finding money is one of the worst hustles about this industry. But here's the part that I don't understand. What happens when you're approached by a filmmaker that, at least in your eyes, you believe has made an incredible amount of money 
And they've done some really, really highly popular work that pretty much everybody in the country knows their film title. I'm, I'm not going to go into details here and name names. But what I'm saying is I know the number one adage in Hollywood is, is never spend your own money. So before I go to this independent filmmaker who really is a mainstream filmmaker who approached me, I'm, I'm going to talk about real quick, let's, let's talk about Spielberg, for example. And I remember reading way back in the day uh, that Spielberg was really upset when financing fell through on Lincoln. And uh, he, you know, shopped it around. And, and at first he thought maybe it would end up going over to HBO or some cable channel for production. And my question is this, and, and maybe I'm just naive or, or just stupid. And that is, what would it have taken to simply write the check himself? If this movie is such a passion project for him, why not just finance it? Because I will say this, no matter what you want to say about the Star Wars prequels and George Lucas, Lucas financed the shit himself. At least he wrote the check, man. So if you didn't like his script, hey, that's okay because he paid himself. He wrote the checks for the production of those movies. Now, if I'm wrong, I'd be pleased if somebody told me that. But from everything I understand, Lucas financed those prequels and at least definitely The Phantom Menace. So say what you will. The guy wrote his own check. And you know what? He's entitled then to make the movie that he wants to make. It's his goddamn money. So what I don't understand is, is when you see wealthy celebrities, for example, on, on crowdfunding platforms, shaking down their fans, asking for money. And, and you know, for example, I mean, you, you can go, the, the easy targets are, are Zach Braff and uh, James Franco. And, you know, James Franco trying to raise money for an indie project. And I get it. There, there's a cachet to all of this. And, and it's a little bit of self-promotion in there. And aren't they hip? And aren't they cool? And they're doing something counter to the industry. I get all of that. But in the end, what Franco made off of Your Highness, he could have financed his movie with. So when these celebrities have a personal wealth, and, and I don't always know their net worth, I think it takes a lot of balls to go out and shake other people down for that money. Now, I know Lincoln did not have a cheap price tag, but Spielberg's wealth, he could have made that movie with his own money if it was that important to him. If I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. I want to go back to this one filmmaker that approached me. We would really hope you could find financing or gap financing for this project that I have. And I'm like, well, I'm also finding money for my own projects. And while I do have two projects right now that look like they're heading into some type of studio production, which I'm very excited about and will announce when things are far more real on that. I, I kind of told this person, look, I, I've got my own problems here. I'm, I'm finding financing for my own stuff. But my question is, you know, you made so much money off your one film, but between that and subsequent television deals and spinoffs and sequels, you've got the money. And the amount of money was under $100,000 on the one project. And the other project, it was a little over a million. But my question in the back of my mind, which really translates to a red flag is, why don't you just fucking pay for it? If this is so important to you, why are you waiting around a year and a half to, to go out and shake the money tree when you can just dip into your bank account and get it? And if you lose it, well, I guess then you learned your lesson. Why are you shaking down other filmmakers, I, I guess, is really the question. And that kind of takes me back to the Cool Kids Lunch Table, where it's like, oh, yeah, you can sit here with us, um, but you got to pay a due. 
Yeah, but all you kids come from the wealthy suburbs and your parents pay for everything. Why do I got to pay you for the privilege to sit at your table? Never spend your own money. Always spend other people's money. I guess it's just a fundamental principle. I I don't know. I, I guess I sound pretty naive about it. But for all of us that are out there, whether we're on crowdfunding, we're beg borrowing and stealing, we're, we're sitting in those meetings where, I mean, you can go into negotiations on trying to secure money that can last months, if not a year. The, the negotiations on the fields for the money went over a year and took place against the backdrop of, of the big financial crash in 2008. So all that work could have easily just gone down the drain. Now we got the movie made. All of you that are listening, have you ever had this problem where you know, people have come to you asking you for money when, when you're trying to raise your own and you think, yeah, but dude, you have better access. Why are you shilling for money when you could e- easily just write the check or, or get it from somewhere else? Always spend somebody else's money, never your own. I, I guess that's the number one rule. But when you're on the indie end of things, you expect to be treated like you would treat other people. Look, I've I've been with some uh, situations where I've seen where producers do what I call a, a Ponzi scheme, and I won't get involved in it. And that is they will go out and they will say a budget is a million dollars. Let's just use a million dollars. And here's more Hollywood bullshit. And so they say the budget is a million dollars and they raise up that million bucks. Now, let's just say you're a director or a writer for hire and you're just a subcontractor. You come on, you direct the movie, you write the movie, you get paid. You get your salary. You're not going to get any back end or anything like that. So you come in and you do your job. But what happens is I've seen producers, uh, what they do is they tell their investors, we need a million dollars. Then they pocket like three or $400,000 of that money and line their own pockets with it and claim fees and all that stuff, and then turn around and tell directors or other producers involved with the film, make the movie for 600. I will not do that. And yet it seems to be like if you really want to get things moving, that's the way to do it. Those are pyramid schemes or Ponzi schemes, in my opinion. And most of all, that kind of shit catches up to you. You can only fuck people so long before they start to wake up and realize And then you've got a really shitty reputation. So I'm advising any of you out there, if somebody gives you $500,000 for a movie, put all of that on the screen. Pay yourself properly. If you're a producer, pay yourself properly and make sure that's all transparent and it's on the books and you can show that you spent that proper money or took that money for yourself. But don't go taking 20 to 30% of the budget and pocketing it for yourself and, and rationalizing it that, well, I did all this work and blah, 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 blah. You know, look, a lot of other people do a lot of work too on, on a film. Don't fall into that scheme. That's a big bullshit scam. So this leads me over to Death House in, in what I call, you know, uh, the road to Death House. I had that on my blog and that is, look, cynicism and bullshit go hand in hand. And when I was approached to do Death House, that film had been around Hollywood for a number of years. And Gunnar Hansen had tried to get this film made several times. But the bottom line is when I was pitched this whole expendables of horror, which I'm going to tell you right now, as a director, I always thought was bullshit. I had, you know, this whole pitch about, you know, it's going to have all these horror stars in it. And the number one thing I said was, is I don't want to make a gimmick movie. I, I don't want to make something where it's like, oh, look, there's Tony Todd, there's Robert Englund, and, and they have a five-second or 30-second cameo, and they kill someone or they die, and they're out. That That's a cheap ripoff, and, and it, it's, it's 
screwing your fans. And Gunner respected that as well, too. And so when we finally got the story together, the way that it is with the prison, it was interesting to see how this all worked and and how we were going to do it. I will say, in my opinion, I never felt that the film should have had a theatrical release. Uh, I, I didn't think that it was it was theatrical material. I felt that it should go the way Gunner wanted, and that is it should go directly to the fans of the convention circuit. That's what Gunner wanted. He wanted to make a movie for his fans. And here's the thing about Death House. When, when you go to do something different and people have a preconceived idea of what it should be, uh, that's a problem. And, and the number one thing that most people really hoped and thought that Death House would be is, is some kind of a Freddy versus Jason mashup. I mean, right up until the movie release, people kept thinking, well, Tony Todd's going to be Candyman and Kane Hodder's going to be Jason Voorhees. No. And then an original movie gets made and they go on the internet and they tear the director down because they're jealous. We wanted to try something different. And, and you know, it's funny. I, I was just picked up on a fandom uh, the wiki page, the entertainment wiki page. And somebody left a comment on there and uh, it, it was total bullshit, this comment. And and they've got it wrong. And, and I was able to find out basically who left the comment. And they're another professional in the industry. And they said something like, you know, Death House is dull and blah, 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 blah. And the director claims that, you know, it's up for audience interpretation uh, to decide what they think about it. And that's just lazy filmmaking. All I can tell you is, fuck you, dude. It is not lazy filmmaking. If you knew what the hell went into making this movie, writing this movie and getting it done, and most of all, yes, it was a conscious effort to actually have people sit there and think, well, maybe this happened or that happened. We do give a definitive ending and I can explain it in 30 seconds. That's not the deal. The deal is, is to allow people to extrapolate a little bit, especially about the esoteric theological questions and philosophical positions that is posed at the end of the film, that are posed at the end of the film. So no, it's not lazy filmmaking. And that's also part of the bullshit of this industry. When you get these know-it-alls who think that they can just go online and hide behind anonymity and just pontificate and say what they want. And the other bullshit part is, is that the people that love your stuff, they don't go online and take the time to post the positive stuff. Some do, but the majority do not. Their attitude is, is, hey man, I really liked it. And so I'll tell some people and, and there you go. But the negative ones or the, the angry ones or whatever it is, they will take the time forever to sit and post. And if you don't believe me, go back to episode six of my podcast and listen to another filmmaker, Tucky Williams. Let her tell you firsthand what she's experienced from the quote unquote online comments. They say they want new horror and then they go, well, it wasn't as good as Evil Dead. It's like, yeah, it's Evil Dead. You go through the dance to get your money and you go to make this movie knowing that really what you're doing is walking into a lion's den of criticism afterwards because all these online know-it-alls are going to rip your shit apart. Where do you take it? Now that the DVD market has withered, it's not dead, but it's not what it was in 2002. It's nowhere near that. Those lucrative days are over. The days of MGs are pretty much over. The days of, of gigantic foreign pre-sales are over. So what does it mean for the indie filmmaker? How do you make a living at this when your, your number one areas for income have dried up? And most of all, the kids at the cool kid lunch table, they're squeezing you all out. Their brand is going. Look, 
J.J. Abrams, for example, and good for this guy. I'm not trashing him, but I'm saying J.J. Abrams probably has like a dozen different projects out to whole different streaming platforms from from probably CBS, Apple Plus, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. He's got his hands in everything. And whenever these kind of things come in, they, they crowd out anybody else. So there's only so much room on the playing field or at that cool kid's lunch table. How do you get in? Do you buy yourself in? Like, for example, when this filmmaker, this indie filmmaker came to me and said, well, Harrison, if you could do X, I was really hoping in some way, if I do go out and find the money, which means I'm taking money away from another one of my projects to help this person, when this person asked me to do it, I'm hoping that I'm buying my way into a situation where I'll be considered for this project or a part of another project. So you're kind of buying your way to the cool kids lunch table. But here's the thing. I didn't do it. You know, I, I kind of thought, am I shoot myself in the foot on this? I mean, this is a, a well-known filmmaker. What, what do I do here? If I say no, this person may never come back. But then there's that other part of me in the back of my mind going, but you've got the money. Why do you need me? The answer is, is, is I have no answer. I, I don't know why people do this. And maybe I'm just looking at things wrong when I, I don't understand why Jeff Bezos has to actually worry about getting a return on on a possible small investment somewhere. And and look, I don't know what these wealthy, mega wealthy people like him or Zuckerberg or Gates or any of them do behind the scenes. For all we know, they could be donating an incredible amount of money elsewhere and not worried about a return. So the bullshit of getting the money is one thing. The bullshit of getting the movie made is another. And then the bullshit of getting it out there, dealing with the assholes that love to just tear your stuff apart, but then on top of it, trying to see a return on that money. So if you're in that position, imagine how you feel when somebody who comes along who's wealthier than you asks you for money when you're trying to get your films to go into the black and trying to find more money to make other films. Again, I mean, I don't know. I, what do you think? I would love to hear some feedback on that if you're a filmmaker especially and if you've been in this kind of position. It's all about surviving in this industry and getting to the cool kids lunch table. You go online and, and you, you tweet and you interact with people and you hope that this type of interaction, like I use Twitter, I don't use Instagram and, and I don't really use Facebook or anything like that. I, I use Twitter for direct communication because it's very immediate and to me seems much more intimate to talk with people, even though it's 140 characters. And I get to talk more about than just self-promotion all the time in my movies. I talk about society. I talk about stupid headlines and and vapid so celebrities and, and stuff like that. And, and it seems to be working. I mean, you know, people know who I am, Harrison Smith as a brand. And, and obviously because fandom picked me up, they recognize my brand. You're out there trying to expand on that brand. You're, you're trying to build more and, and to, to create more. And all of that is hard when all that you're trying to create and get out there, the, the pathways become smaller and smaller and smaller. If you're out there breaking the mold and trying to do something different and people go, yeah, but it's not like this. They say they want new horror and then they go, well, it wasn't as good as Evil Dead. It's like, well, yeah, it's Evil Dead. Nothing's ever going to be as good as Evil Dead. You're allowed to sit at the cool kids lunch table if you wear the members only jacket and pop your collar. And if you don't do that, well, then why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you fitting the mold? Why aren't you making the formula? 
Because you see, that's all that people want. They want their movies like fast food. We should be having cuisine. We should be sampling. Filmmaking should be a buffet of things and in a well-done buffet. There is a big difference in buffets, as I'm sure some of you know. We should be looking for quality, not just gigantic franchises and remakes and regurgitation. That's also part of the Hollywood bullshit. If you're out there making your movie and it's taken you two, three years to make it and you still don't know what to do with it when it's done, or if you're afraid what people are going to say, I would love to hear from you. Let's get you on the show. Let's hear you talk about what you deal with. So that's my episode on Hollywood bullshit today. There'll be more coming, especially when we get into Death House, how Death House was made, and most of all, how Death House was released theatrically. We'll be getting into that as well too. So I thank you for your time. I hope this Sunday gave you something to look forward to in the way of this podcast and you got something out of it. That's all the reason why I'm doing this. And even that's bullshit, right? I'm not making any money off this podcast. I'm doing it because in some ways it's therapy. And most of all, I'm out there in the trenches fighting the good fight too. So until the next episode, thanks for your time and have a kick-ass weekend. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.